This episode of Home Truths was sponsored by Heels, design that lasts a lifetime. I, I don't think I'd ever been a particularly good um, designer uh, if I'd worked in a firm and, and, and been given tasks uh, or problems to solve. It's just not the way I go about things. From Living Etc. Magazine, this is Home Truths, a show about the fascinating stories behind some of the most iconic pieces, movements and moments of modern design, revealed by the designers themselves. I'm Pip McCormack, and on the show today, how designer Tom Dixon went from being the punk of the British design scene to becoming its godfather, head of a global design brand, and stocked in 95 countries around the world. Remember that scene in Devil Wears Prada where Meryl Streep talks about how the colour of the jumper Anne Hathaway is wearing was selected for her by the people in this room? Well, if you've ever had anything copper in your home, and chances are by this point you probably have, then it's because it was first pioneered by Tom Dixon. It's hard to believe now, but back in the early noughties it was only him using it, and his famous and hugely influential copper ball pendant light gone on to inspire a thousand, maybe even a million products in similar rose gold hue from all manner of brands. Among many notable projects, he has created the interiors of Shoreditch House, he has his work displayed in the permanent collection of MoMA in New York, and he's now head of a sprawling design studio, restaurant and shopping experience in London's King's Cross. But rewind back to the 1980s, and as a young musician, it didn't seem plausible that Tom would become such a credible and huge name in design. Before this episode, Tom chose five key milestones which helped him get to where he is today. And by giving us the story behind them, he's going to tell us how he did it. And stay tuned at the end of the episode because we've got a quick chat with Eleanor Nadimi, founder of the design studio 1985, who has some great insight into how to build a brand when you're brand new. Anyway, back to Tom Dixon and his early days, when for him, design was really just a hobby, a backdrop to more hedonistic ideals. I was making things first for fun and um, and a bit performance. You know, we, we had this nightclub that had a stage and I'd, I'd uh, get up and, and make some things uh, in front of the public. But, you know, the great thing about the nightclub business is that you know a lot of people superficially and those people tend to be people in, I don't know, hairdressing and and fashion and... Uh, photography and and they they needed stuff making so I was very quickly making lots of things for lots of people also um, started to exhibit and um, got an assistant and got another one got some tools got a bigger workshop and kind of moved around London a bit um, getting bigger and bigger workshops and and um, and uh, doing shows in, in galleries but my 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 um, workshop then eventually in, in um, South London and uh, I think that what I did then was to um, think that I, I really needed to have a showcase and also there was some interesting work being, being shown at the time um, or, or that existed at the time in, 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 the, in not, not in the UK. There's a lot of uh, quite amazing Dutch work for instance and some good student work and I thought that I'd, I'd, I'd like to show other people's work 
and, and, and contextualize mine as well. So I opened a shop called Space and called, you know, renamed the studio space as well to just be a kind of more of a platform for other people's talent and, and, and showing new work in the UK. So that was my first experience in, in retail. And you, um, you mentioned that um, you wanted to sort of give your work a sort of a context. Where do you think your work at that time was fitting into the design scene? Well, it wasn't. You know, the, the, the thing is that I didn't fit neatly into a craft scene because I was not a very good craftsman. Um, there was the design council at the time, which was a very serious industrial design kind of club. Um, but there weren't really any galleries and, uh, or, or, or shops that were showing contemporary design. Ron Arad had a, a shop in Covent Garden and he did a show of mine, which was kind of great. Um, but... but um, most people, you know, didn't really think that what we were doing was legitimate, but the Japanese and the Germans and the Italians were sort of hovering about. And when I, when I went and did exhibitions in Japan or in, 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 in Italy, you'd see galleries which had a much kind of broader view of what design could be. But really at that time, I didn't even really consider myself uh, a designer. I mean, I didn't really... Uh, kind of label myself. I mean, I made things, and 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 those things went into kind of art galleries and and uh, uh, and into collections. But they it wasn't classified in the way that it would be now. How was words getting out about you, Tom? Was it through people you knew? Were you courting the press? What was what was happening around you at that time? Well, I mean, obviously, it was fundamentally way before any means of social media, but I'd um, have events at my studio. Um, you know, I'd, I'd done a lot of um, work for, uh, like I said, I've been doing shop fittings for Catherine Hamnet or for uh, Vivian Westwood. And you know, people heard about um, stuff and things were published in magazines, mainly foreign, foreign design magazines like Domus, in Italy and people would visit my studio and, and then they'd offer to, to do a show in, in Nuremberg or, or a show in, in, in uh, Nagoya or something and, and you'd go and you'd jump on a plane and you'd be uh, an exotic uh, Englishman. But there was no design culture really, there was no, you know, Blueprint was roughly the only magazine and that was an architecture magazine. Um, there was no supplements on design in, in, the, in the newspapers and it just was, it was a bit of a backwater really. It sounds like there was quite a lot of excitement and buzz around you and a lot of, I mean, just hearing about these, you know, shows around the world, it sounds quite wonderful. What was the day-to-day -day at Space like? Were you surrounded by like-minded people? Was it full of creatives? What was that like? Well, you know, it was the flotsam of, and jetsam of, of, of people that, you know, either couldn't get jobs elsewhere or were just attracted to the kind of liberty of, of, of making things. I mean, you, you could learn welding very easily. I mean, I could teach somebody in, in half an hour and get them making something. And I needed, you know, I needed a, a flexible and interested uh, workforce. And a lot of people went through my studio. You know, there wasn't a lot of places like that at the time. And, um, you know, those people have often gotten off to some interesting careers. I mean, Thomas, he Thomas Heatherwick, for instance, uh, learned to weld and had his first job in my studio. And, and uh, he, he does much better than me now. So 
uh, and you know, I don't know Tom Sachs is a, a, a an artist in in New York. Uh, same way, sort of abandoned a, a career in architecture to come and work in in my studio. But it was a you know big and engaging place um, to work, and and the shop was a kind of you know quirky, quite small shop in All Saints Road, which was still a kind of you know, a, 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 a drug uh, centre, you know, people, taxi drivers wouldn't drop you off there. It was quite, you know, Notting Hill, or that part of Notting Hill, at least at the time, was was still, you know, a, a bit rough around the edges and quite an exciting landscape to work in. Well, there, I mean, there seemed to be quite a sort of rough and readiness to the way you were working as well. So that probably fitted, like, I, I, you know, seeing the prototype for the S chair that you designed for Capellini in 1990 that was made with a walk as the base. Um, you know, I, I think it's sort of, it's quite interesting to see that you were just sort of grabbing what you could and I guess working with what you had to hand. Um, how did the partnership with Capellini come about? Well, so it's wrong to say that I designed the chair for Capellini. I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd made uh, the, the original prototypes, you know, for uh, 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 a, a salon, a hairdressing salon in Covent Garden, actually, now that I think about it. And, and um, I've been trying to make these chairs out of rubber inner tubers and upholstery material and, and you know, various bits and pieces. And I kind of hit upon this monopod, you know, single, single leg kind of design, uh, kind of by chance. I was sort of making an office chair typology with with a, a you know a conventional uh, base and, and um, I sort of tied together the base and the and the seats um, at one point and and um, and saw this kind of curvy linear shape emerge which I could wrap very easily in in a recycled rubber inner tube and so you know I, I'm I'm never particularly happy with a design I, I tend to tinker with it so it kind of went through about 18 different iterations and I tried lots of different ways of covering it because the rubber wasn't very popular you know secondhand tire rubber smells of guess what secondhand <laughs> tires you know, so so you know people you know people not not so many people are, are interested in sitting on that but when I when I started making it in bulrush and I had an assistant that, that had, had been on a kind of basket making course of some sort um, that's when it started, you know, really taking off as a chair. So I probably made a hundred in the studio. We went into some kind of semi-mass production. Um, alongside, um, uh, we managed to, to find a, a department of the RNIB, the Royal Institute for the Blind, um, where they sent people out, um, blind people, to 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 rush, you know, to re-rush chairs. So we'd have this fantastic guy with a guide dog come to the studio and make a chair a day or, or weave a chair a day on metal frameworks that we'd made. And I think that was roughly the time when, when Heatherwick was welding in, 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 in the basement. We'd moved to Olympia by that time. And so that was kind of, um, you know, when I was moving from making one-off pieces and doing jobbing metalwork to, to really trying sort of small batch production. I'd been asked by somebody in in, um, in Italy to do an exhibition in Milan during the fair. I didn't really know a lot about the fair, the, the Milan Furniture Fair, but during that period, and it was a fashion person who'd who'd fallen out with their, their fashion partner and wanted to do more of a kind of select shop, and she wanted to hold an exhibition, and she collected together me and Mark Newson and an American designer called Chris Roos, 
Um, and you know, I guess she knew me probably more through um, through the fashion business because she'd been partner to Romeo Gilli, and she was um, Carla Sotsani, who has this amazing shop now in that location called Ten Corso Como. Kind of was one of the very first proper um, kind of concept shops. A bit of fashion bookshop and all the rest of it, but <clears throat> so she she she'd found us, you know, in in you know, in in America, in England, and and Japan because Mark Newson was working in in um, in Japan at the time, and and it was all of ours first uh, showing in 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 the during the Salone time in Milan, and she she thought that that one of these pieces from each of us should go into production. And so she contacted Capellini and, and asked him to make a production version of this chair that I'd already made, I don't know, 150 of at the time. And that's how I, I met um, Capellini and became part of a kind of uh, a series of, of English um, and international designers that started making a bit of headway into what had then been dominated mainly by Italian designers in Italian industries, you know. So Capellini was very brave at, at you know, actually even engaging people like Jasper Morrison and, and, and me um, uh, because at the time it was seen as very bad form to employ a foreign designer in an Italian, an Italian firm. One of the things that really um, sort of made me smile about that chair was when you were doing a virtual tour recently uh, that I joined and you explained to the audience on, on Zoom that... Um, you know, it, it, uh, about the S-chair, you said, at first you may think it's uncomfortable, but don't be fooled. Once you get your balance on it, you'll find it's very ergonomically good. And I just thought that was so interesting because it was almost as if you weren't designing it to be automatically accepted and automatically loved. You, you understood that people might have reservations when they first saw it, but you designed it because you knew it was good. I think for a young designer, that's quite brave to just be like, well, this is what I, I know is good and I'm not designing for automatic aesthetic value is that something that you felt at the time that you were just doing what you wanted to do well i kind of was i mean i think my observation particularly when i go into art schools um which i do from time to time and you know do a tutorial or or run a project is that people are often very restricted from doing that people are stopped from doing stuff you know so first of all they're given the brief which you know i always vaguely resent actually you know when I'm given a brief um and then and then um and then I expected to produce one solution to this brief um which is finished in a specific amount of time and I've never really been able to work like that so I, I don't think I'd ever been a particularly good um designer uh, if I'd worked in a firm and and, and been given tasks uh, or problems to solve it's just not the way I go about things so I mean, the 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 combination of of you know a bit of knowledge, but not too much, and a, a lot of practice. You know, i.e., making lots and lots of iterations, and and not being told what not to do, because then at art school you then get a crit, which is terrifying. You get all of your peers, all of your friends coming in and and slagging off whatever you've you've made. Um, you know, that would have put me off quite early in my career, I think, and, and stopped me doing a lot of stuff. But instead, I was just doing things anonymously. You know, because again, I think uh, that one of the, the, the terrors of the modern world 
is social media where you feel that you need to publicize what you do immediately before you're, you've even finished it, you know. Um, so I was working anonymously and I, you know, in, in, in the back of beyond and nobody really knew what I was doing. I could make my own mistakes and, and create my own narrative and my own, my own aesthetic without, without um, any interruption. But the, in, the important thing was more that I made a lot of stuff. I mean, a lot, you know, a lot of things which then I cut up and, and remade into something else. A lot of things that I could adjust and then I could also ponder and, and if some experiment had had not worked that year I'd, I'd bring it back out the following year so i think that that having a studio i mean it probably means working a bit more uh as a sculptor might do rather than as a, as a designer is, is is the way that i work but also not having to to work to a specific brief from a um from a client at the time was was also i think um a bit more liberating i mean now we work obviously in a more conventional way in the main but the pandemic has given me a bit of space, particularly at weekends, where I could go and do things with my hands again. And I've, I've kind of remembered the, the the pure joy of not having um, not having a, an, an idea when you start out, even, but just playing and playing and playing again until you get something interesting and making really bad stuff, and then knowing it's bad and then improving it is kind of something that I don't think I don't think you're allowed to do if you're conventionally trained in a way and, and tom i mean that chair is now in the permanent collection of some of the world's greatest museums you know it's uh, in milan it's in the moma in new york i mean does that feel like some kind of acceptance or does that feel weird or does that feel like it's the right thing that it should be in those things for you i mean were you surprised that that it's become a piece of art in its own right um i never realized that having a chair in a museum was actually a big thing until I went to visit Audi Design Centre and they said our ultimate goal is to get a car into the Museum of the Modern Art. So I was like, oh, I've got something in the Museum of Modern Art. And I realised then that it was something that people aspired to, but I never really did think about it. So, I mean, I find it very flattering. I, I, I love the idea that, um, that, that these things have become collectible. Um, but I'm, I'm always much more interested in what I can do next rather than, you know, what's sitting in the museum right now. Fair enough. Um, we're going to fast forward a bit to 2002 um, and the next milestone, which is the launch of Tom Dixon, the brand. Mm -hmm. But before we do that, um, we'd love to have a very quick recap of the years in between. You know, you become head of design and creative director at Habitat. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what had you learned from, from that time, from working with a big brand like that? What did you take away from, from that experience into Tom Dixon? Well, it's kind of, it was an interesting moment. I mean, uh, by that time, I'd, I'd got my retail shop and I had 17 assistants in Vauxhall and I had, you know, a metal work business and I was doing my own marketing and all of it was kind of un, untutored. You know, I didn't really know what I was doing. I mean, I particularly wasn't very good at minding the money. And what happened was that we were doing a series of, of bits of metal work for a nightclub in, in, in Soho. Well, that went bust and, and they never paid us and, and that made the business really unstable and I'd been offered this job which I thought I'd go to the interview just you know just to sit you know just I'd never really been to a proper job interview um, and um, and heard a bit about what the job was like and, and um, seemed to conform to what they were looking for um, mainly because I speak French and they were moving the headquarters to France I think but 
the bottom line is that is that I took the job and and all of all the people around me were horrified because it was a corporate job, you know, and, and you know I'd been an anarchic kind of self-made um, designer, uh, and and, um, and they didn't want to see me join a corporation. So I did. I went sort of against the grain, but it was one of the better decisions I made, I think, because I got exposed to this vast amount of of kind of interesting stuff which wasn't particularly designed but was everything that surrounds it you know so the retail element you know there were 70 shops at the time the sourcing element and we were part of the ikea group at the time so we really really got to know how things are made all over the world um, and how they're made cheaply as well um, but you know not not in that kind of awful way of exploitation because the swedes are actually quite careful about um, the sources, and they also invest in the factories, um, but but a lot more um, uh, about the sourcing, the retail, communication as well. You know, because we we did two two three catalogs a year. I was involved a lot in the marketing and the communication and and creative direction, just in general, and branding. Uh, and, then, and then on top of that, the categories. You know, so what was interesting, there was sort of sixteen thousand items in the range at the time. And um, and you'd get exposed and, and get knowledgeable about things like cuddly toys or or art prints or or even plants and tableware and you know textiles and pajamas and you know all kinds of things that you know as a kind of industrial designer I'd never touch as a craftsman I would not get involved with and I learned about injection molding and I learned about lighting and I learned about almost everything that exists in the home. In, um, in, in, in a relatively deep way because I went to visit the factories and I knew what people really bought all the way around Europe. So there was, it was kind of like an astonishing uh, university of, of, um, of the stuff that you live with. And, um, and I had a really great time there also employing lots of, of um, uh, emerging designers and, and also working with some of the the oldest and most established designers of, of the 60s for a couple of projects that I did. So that was that was kind of, you know, uh, quite quite a ride actually. And what did Tom Dixon the brand look like at, at launch then? How big was the team? Where were you based? Well, it, it looked like nothing. You know, I mean, it, we we kind of um, you know, so this this person walked into my office in. Um, uh, actually, it was the, the day that the, the jets hit the skyscrapers in New York, uh, the World Trade Center. So, you know, I remember the, the day in the meeting that, and he said, oh, well, um, I want to start a, a furniture brand. I wanted some advice. And I said, oh, I'm a bit sick of corporate life. And, and we decided to do something together. And he started the business and I resigned and, and they wanted me to stay on half time so I could make a living. And he worked in a basement and put together a company with a couple of designs. And, um, and we built it from zero with, with um, one designer working for me remotely and, and one person doing sales and product development. And, um, you know, we just added bits and pieces as, as we grew. An interior designer, um, a accountant, uh, you know, more salespeople, more designers. And it grew organically until until we got an investment from a, a company called Preventus, a Swedish, very nice Swedish investment company. And, um, and, uh, and we acquired a bit of Artec, a portion of Artec along the way. So Artec, a Finnish, um, a Finnish uh, modernist uh, furniture company, which was born in 1927. 
and and so I was art directing that and my own brand, which was quite nice as well. So I, I, you know, was, the idea then was to make a group of of interior design companies. So that was the beginnings of the firm. And what was the reaction to Tom Dixon at the time? Did people get it straight away? We didn't get it ourselves at the beginning. I mean, I, I thought I'd concentrate on a single uh, manufacturing technique to start with, which was plastic extrusion, and, and that wasn't that successful. And then we toyed around with a few lamps, and then I hit on on a couple of lamps that really took off, and, and suddenly we were a lighting business, and I didn't want to be a lighting business. So we then did some collaborations in furniture and upholstery and got a hit in uh, the wing-back chair. And I wanted to, to create something where um, people that, that could access the, 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 the label, so I created an accessories line as well. Um, and so it kind of grew, uh, you know, brick by brick um, from literally nothing. I mean, it's, it's a huge achievement, what you have done, but I want to sort of zip back to 2005 and the copper pendant light, which I think is, I, I don't know whether you would agree, but I, I would say arguably one of your most famous designs or certainly up there. Um, can you tell me about the thinking behind that design? Well, yes and no. I mean, okay, I'd, I'd been using brass and copper since very early days i mean you you're you know if if you start off in metal work and i mean i started mainly in kind of scrap iron um you use uh copper um because it's soft and it's malleable and it's got a warm color and copper hadn't been a very popular metal at least in interior design but it's kind of used for all kinds of of stuff you know every every wire has got copper inside to carry the electricity you know uh, I mean, every cable, um, every every plumbing system has got co copper carrying the water. So copper's kind of everywhere, and it's often very concealed. You know, so I'd always liked the colour. I'd liked it as a metal because, you know, like I say, you could shape it very easily. You could patinate it as well, so you could get many, many colours in, in copper. But um, we started using it as a, a very thin film in a process called vacuum metallization on some plastic globes. I'd found a manufacturer in Germany that was making mainly lights for outdoor, you know, for, for, for outdoor lighting, meaning, you know, the things you see on sticks in, in, in city, city squares, so round globes. And I'd wanted to make something which was kind of perfect and pure and completely spherical. Um, and, and I found out that, that they, they were able to do other colors, not just the, the chrome that you see on those lamps. And, and so I wanted to do a, a special edition and I did it in copper and I didn't think it would sell, but we hit a moment. And at that moment it was people were just really sick of stainless steel and brushed aluminium, which had been around as a kind of design color for a really long time. And we're looking for something a bit warmer. So you, you could put a, a, a low energy bulb into these things and, and they wouldn't be so, um, so harsh and so unpleasant. And so, I, I don't know what it was, but I think we hit a kind of moment. Yeah, you certainly did hit a moment. I, mean, I remember, you know, every house story that we had submitted to whatever magazine I was working on at the time, almost all of them had your, your copper, copper pendant light in it. Yeah, you're making it sound a bit common there. No, no, it wasn't common. <laughs> it was this piece of this aspirational design that was so, it sort of went with everything. It was warming. It was just people, you're, you're right, people just really responded well to it. I wonder if that, if the legacy of that, if that kind of helped 
supercharged the brand for you a little bit, do you think? Did that make you more, more of a household name, perhaps? No, I mean, it's funny that you pick on, pick on that one because I, 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 I wouldn't pick that one. What as, one would you pick? One. Well, we, we did um, something called The Beat Light, which was a, a project which I started as a kind of not-for-profit one alongside um, the Royal College and, and, um, and uh, uh, British Council. Um, where I was working with um, some streets, streets metal workers in India, and um, and with with the students, and I just decided I'd make a, a, a series of lamps that that were based on on the water vessels that you see uh, Indian women mainly carrying on their heads, you know, to to take water from the well, and and these pots were really beautiful, and and um, I, I sort of thought they would make amazing lamps so we did that and, and that, those lamps have taken off um really and, and formed quite quite a bit of the bread and butter of the brand at the beginning i just want to interrupt this conversation to tell you a little bit about the crawford collection at heels designed by rob scarlett it's just the most beautiful collection of blonde oak furniture and smart brass detailing there is a smooth sideboard cabinet with gorgeous brass handles that is both soothing to the eye and utterly sophisticated as we've all tried to turn our homes as much into sanctuaries as possible these last few months, products like this, all smooth finishes and understated edges, are what make a house a home. So have a look in any Heels store or on Heels.com for the Crawford collection. You won't be disappointed. Heels, design that lasts a lifetime. We're sort of moving forward again a little bit. I think that your projects kind of just got bigger and bigger and bigger over time. You know, I want to talk about the um, sea containers that uh, opened in 2014. And, you know, it wasn't your first public space, obviously, you'd already done Shoreditch House, you, you know, but Sea Containers just felt, felt like a real uh, moment for you because it was so, it's such a beautiful building on London South Bank, you know, you walk in and there's this huge sort of copper sheets everywhere. It feels like you, like you're making a statement. Did it feel like a big deal to you at the time, that project? Yeah, I mean, we kind of, we kind of knew that, that it was going to be... Um... Uh, the biggest thing that we'd done, you know, in, in interior design for sure. And we, we had to really fight for it. I mean, it's difficult to to get jobs designing hotels because they tend to go to hotel design specialists. I mean, they, they're quite complex things, hotels, in terms of the different types of design you have to deliver. You know, you're doing conference rooms and there's a little cinema and there's a bar on the roof and there's a, a couple of restaurants and, and there's, you know, 400 rooms and there's corridors. And I mean, it's all interlinked like a little village, you know. So there's an element of kind of town planning about, about the job as well. But we also worked a bit on the branding and we worked a bit on even on, on, on the smells in, in, in the place as well. Um, and that was part of the inspiration for doing even fragrances you know was was working on a hotel because you're trying to do a, a whole a whole world a whole universe of stuff there so yeah i mean we were conscious of what we were taking on and, and of course we really fought quite hard for the job um because we wanted to to show that we could do more than just make products you know so yeah i mean it, it was it, it was a, a great thing and, and they look after it properly so it's, it's still you know i'm still proud of, of that job I mean, this is such a far cry from when you were the kind of the iconoclast at, um, you know, in your early days, sort of working outside of the lines, as it were. You know, you're now at Coldrops Yard. You went, you opened in 2018 um, as the flagship brand over there. Can you tell us a little bit about what Coldrops Yard is for someone that perhaps hasn't been? 
Well, you know, the, the, I was very suspicious of it. Um, when this building presented itself, I just said no, because we'd just been in a canal side Victorian building for the previous 10 years. And um, although I loved it, I had real character, I just didn't want to move into another canal side building in uh, 1850s. Um, and with all of the intrinsic uh, problems that come along with the beautiful decaying um, walls kind of thing. But um, we looked everywhere because we wanted somewhere with a restaurant. We'd had a restaurant in the old, in the old studio and that worked really well as, as, a, as a means of demonstrating what we do properly rather than just having a showroom. We wanted retail and we also wanted, um, you know, 100 people in, in the office. And it was just hard to find a building where we could do all of that. And this was the only one that, that existed. Um, and we have 17,000 square foot and we show our collections and sometimes we bring in partners and we have parties and it's a very pleasant place to work. I mean, particularly during the pandemic when there was only three people in the building. I mean, I had literally what felt like a castle at my disposal. I once read an interview with you where uh, the person asked you when you're working, um, whether you sort of discuss or exchange ideas with your colleagues and you said, no, I keep very quiet. So I would have thought you'd probably really enjoy this new way of life with only three people in the building. Does that, is it working for you? Yeah, I mean, uh, apart from the endless Zoom calls that kind of interrupt your, your, your calm, I mean, it's, um, it's, uh, it, it's been kind of like for a lot of people, a unique moment to, to just pause and, and, and think about what you're doing. I mean, obviously, there's been vast amounts of activity as well because we've had people on furlough. We've had to move everybody out of the office. We've had to close down the restaurant. We've had to, you know, take a really big hit to our income this year. Um, so it's not been pleasant, but um, there's been bits of it which are kind of unrepeatable. I mean, cycling through London with no traffic at all is kind of unique. It'll never happen again, I don't suppose. But um, so I've, I've taken advantage of the crisis, as, as Churchill um, used to say, and, and, and tried to use it also as a means of getting back to making things with my own hands and, and, and really not having anybody telling me what to do. I mean, I'm, I'm majority owned by private equity. And, and, you know, we have to grow every year and, and, and we have to do what we do. And I'm always interested in doing other stuff. So particularly, um, I've been getting up very early in the mornings before work and, and going to an orchid greenhouse in, in, um, in Lewis and, and making things and then taking Zoom calls there, which has been quite liberating, actually, yeah. Tom, I wonder if you've ever had a master plan and if you have, how close you are to it at the moment? Uh, well, yes and no. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, never, I never really did have a plan at all. But, I mean, you know, particularly... Um, you know, I, I, I grasp opportunity and I kind of, I, I seed opportunity as well. I mean, I think you don't, you know, it's not like I, 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 um, I try and avoid having plans, but I'm forced to um, for all kinds of reasons. And certainly working for a big organization like Habitat or even, you know, the IKEA organization f forces you to be a bit more, um, a bit more rigorous about having a plan. And of course, being owned by private equity, you have a five-year plan and you have a three-year plan and you've got a, year, a year's budget. And so you have to plan, right? Um, but the, the best things <clears throat> I've always found happen in between the plans, you know, and, um, and, and come from the unexpected, um, unexpected uh, uh, overlaps between um, things that you've, you've, you've started and not finished or 
or unexpected encounters, you know. So I think you need to have a plan, um, but you need to also be able to react to that plan not working. Um, and you also need to be open to stuff that goes beyond the plan. And I was led mainly by a series of unfortunate motorcycle accidents, which changed my career path several times. Yes, because of course you were a performer before that. Is that right? Well, I played bass guitar. I mean, I hardly perform. You know, yeah. I mean, we, 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 I was a professional musician, put it that way. Yeah. Tom, we're just going to move on to the last section of the podcast, the home truth section, which is a, a few quick fire questions for you. Uh -huh. um, Tom, I know you are you are obsessive about materials. I wonder if you have a favourite at the moment. Yeah, I've got two favourites at the moment. One which is cork. Um, so I think you know. Um, you know, I found this material that's got this kind of superior sustainability credentials. It's it's carbon positive, which is kind of very unusual um, state of any material because you don't kill the tree when when you collect the cork, right? So, um, and it's got these amazing properties uh, in acoustics and in waterproofness and in lightness, and and um, it also smells really good when you char it. So we've charred this cork tables, and we've got a, an object here which functions as a table, but also functions as an acoustic um, improver and also smells great, like a perfume. So that's the new wonder material. And then the second one is circuit boards, which isn't strictly a material, but um, is, is the, my current obsession because these are the things that kind of power the modern world. And they're always hidden inside your watch, inside your computer, inside your phone, your car. Um, but really, they're, they're, they're the things that are making this conversation possible, but they're always hidden. So I've, I've pulled the circuit boards out and, and, you know, specifically in the lighting field where kind of we've made this series of, of lamps which are using um, the circuit board and the LED chip in, in, in their naked glory. Uh, so that's my current passion. Um, how much Tom Dixon do you have in your own house? As little as possible. I mean, not because I don't like it, but just because it surrounds me at work. Great. Uh, lastly, uh, where can listeners engage with you and your work? Well, I mean, at the moment, we're getting better and better at engaging with people through the wonderful medium of uh, Zoom. And um, so, you know, we're, we're making bigger efforts to do that. I mean, we've got an Instagram page, which is very popular, at Tom Dixon Studio. Um, where you know every day there's there's a new facet of what we do. Um, um, we are sold in 95 countries, so you'll find us in in in, in most places in the world, um, in in retail shops, and 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 you you can see us in a lot of places that you visit, um, uh, hotels and bars and restaurants because we we do 50 percent into into projects rather than to the consumer. Um, we sell direct online as well, so so you know if people want our things, then um, that's an easy way of doing it. Um, and also, you know, we we've um, um, we've missed four big trade fairs this year, so we're going to get out on the road and, and start doing some promotions in in places uh, near you. So I think you know what's nice about um, what's going on now is rather than trying to get the party and getting twenty thousand people to come. Um, and speaking to the converted, we're, 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 we're being forced to get out and meet our actual clients um, pretty much one-to-one -one or with very small events with social distancing. So that's what we're preparing right now to go to Copenhagen with a, a very small, um, uh, you know, small ambitions actually rather than large ones, but with, you know, with a traveling show, a bit like a circus. Great. Well, good luck with that. And thank you so much for your time, Tom. It was so fascinating to hear you talk. Thank you.
Okay, thank you for having me. Okay, bye. And stay tuned, because in a moment, we're going to meet Eleanor Nazimi, whose career is at a much earlier stage than Tom Dixon's, and her insight into launching a brand right now is invaluable. A few years ago, she was working as a print designer for H&M. And while she was enjoying the job, she knew she wanted to work for herself and create products that had a longer life cycle than the fast fashion environment she was in. So in 2016, she moved back to London from Stockholm and set up 1985 as an ethical homeware brand with core values in considered design, sustainable production and ethical trading, making cushions, throws and small accessories. And while she was able to take a lot of learnings from her time at H&M about supply chains, manufacture and branding, she had all this energy and excitement behind her, which didn't necessarily mean her launch was going to be plain sailing. That's one mistake I made when I started. I got so excited, you know, I've, I've been saving up whilst I was working, really excited to start this business. I had all these ideas and I just wanted to throw everything at the launch and have all this, um, all this product and different things available and services. And I had to really sort of rein myself back in. Um, I'm a one person uh, business, so I do, pretty much everything that's involved in running it so my time is really limited and especially at the beginning because you're putting lots of things in place for the first time um so my one of my main bits of advice in hindsight looking back at what I did is to just really refine your idea keep it simple um and really work out what your values are in terms of what do you want to say what's your story what do you stand for and keep those things as core values as you grow because it will help keep you grounded and true to why you started it in the first place. And then of course Eleanor had to prioritise where she was going to spend what little spare money she had to get the best out of it. I definitely would say that I overspent on some areas when I started having gone into it with no business experience I was quite naive to certain things but the key things that I did spend on that have been really beneficial was creating a really good website that had great SEO. And the SEO is the part that gets you found when people search on Google and whatnot. So those kind of organic searches and people finding you and building your audience, those things are key as a small business. Because if you are planning to set up um, sort of a web shop on your website, that's where you're going to make the biggest return. Um, so it will have the biggest impact straight away for you and to create those audiences that um, are around you are invaluable because they'll be with you at the beginning of your journey and will become almost like your tribe to support you and word of mouth is really important so the more people you can have around you that have found your business the better um the other um area that i spent was product development um for me it's really important that 1985 had extremely good quality products I'm making things I want them to last I don't want someone to use them for a season and then switch up with something else I want them to buy things that they love and they cherish and are happy to come home to and see and make them feel like their home environment is a sanctuary so it was really important that I really invested in the sampling um, with manufacturers to ensure that everything I was doing was right for the brand. And that was quite costly at the beginning. Um, but once you start doing sampling and learning about how the different products you're making work and 
the boundaries that you have within those product types, it can really help you to sort of innovate and push forward um, without it being too expensive. So definitely invest in your product development for sure and a website. They're the two main things for me. Eleanor found that building a brand inevitably took over her life, but that wasn't necessarily a bad thing. I work from home. Um, fabric takes up a lot of space, so does cushions. Um, there, it's quite nice to have all of my work around me um, because it ultimately I'm selling something to a person who's going to be living with it. So I'm essentially living with the products too as they're in development. So it's kind of a great way to do a product test. Um, and it really sort of helps me to finalize a collection and, and work out what colors work better together and what sit nicer. And um, it's been really beneficial actually working from home for that reason. One of Eleanor's core values, working solely with British manufacturers, actually turned out to be one of her biggest advantages. I was really lucky and reached out to a company called Make It British, um, who, which is run by a lady called Kate Hills. And she's an ex fashion buyer if I recall correctly um anyway she set up this program to help small businesses start businesses to source British manufacturers and she has a trade show for that as well and that was really helpful to just give me like an overview of what's available and from there I delved in further because before I knew about that it was a bit of a minefield um so in terms of challenges I mean the only hurdle I've really really faced was when I first started to reach out to companies that I wanted to work with um, I'm approaching them as a startup I'm trying to get them to believe in um, what I'm doing and that was a challenge that I didn't foresee um, there were a lot of no's initially um, either because their minimums were too high or they couldn't accommodate what I needed or they were already at full capacity. A lot of factories in the UK are really, really busy, which is lovely, but trying to get your foot in the door sometimes makes that a bit trickier. You have to have quite a thick skin. It was um, a combination of perseverance, really just pushing my ideas, like, I know this is gonna work, this is what I wanna do. Please, can you work with me, even if it's just a one-off short run and then I can come back for a larger order. You have to respect that and just try and find a company that is either A, really believes in what you're doing or B, can, can work to the minimums you need straight off. Um, and now that I have those in place, it's been great. Everything about producing in the UK for me personally has been a plus. I can visit my factories, um, which in itself is really really helpful because you build a real relationship rather than a virtual one um, which is crucial especially as you grow um, and also within the sampling process if you can communicate properly and there's good understanding you can even go and visit them and work together on a product development you're you're working more collaboratively and you're really building a bond so that really understand what it is that you need for your brand um, the other things that's really great about UK manufacturing on a side note is just that in terms of when this whole um, pandemic happened, I know a lot of companies who were producing abroad really struggled because everything shut down, nothing was coming in, um, imports are still 
tricky at the moment now, even though lockdown's lifted. Um, and then with with Brexit coming, and uh, there's lots, there's going to be lots of tariff changes. So I think for me, it's taken away a lot of unnecessary stress, which has been lovely. Thanks to the way she built her social media presence, it wasn't long before Eleanor got a big break in a very unexpected way. Well, heels have been great to work with. They actually, they reached out to me only two months after I launched 1985, asking if I wanted to work with them collaboratively. And to be honest, I actually thought it was a joke. I thought a friend was being really mean and pulling this prank on me because I could never have imagined that a company that established would dream of wanting to work with me at such an early stage of um, the brand's journey. And the trust and belief they have in what I do was and still is extremely humbling and it's led to us working together for three years now. They found me um, on Instagram. So it just shows the power that social media has for a, a business of any size. And with you know social media being a, predominantly a free tool, it was so helpful for me at the beginning being a completely independent startup. So yeah, that's how that, um, that whole journey started through Instagram, which is amazing. And now I've been working with them for three years, designing exclusive cushion collections for them, as well as working with products that I couldn't have done um, on my own. Um, and that was working with designing rugs. The latest project was designing a print for their Wallace sofa um, by Russell Pinch. And it's just been really great to to realize these ideas into bigger products because what I'm used to is much smaller sort of cushions and things like that. Collaborating with a design giant like Heels is any young brand's dream and the knock-on effects have been huge. It's definitely given the brand a step up. It, I feel like it's grown up actually by having been given these opportunities. It, it means, it gives me the confidence because sometimes that can be quite tricky as a as a small business you're working solo you don't have a big budget um sometimes it can become quite lonely or quite daunting and you just need to bounce ideas off someone so when a company like heels comes along and says we really believe in what you do can you do work on this sofa project for us it's like wow okay i'm definitely on the right track i'm doing something good here People believe in me and it gives you so much more drive to move forward. And I love working collaboratively because you just you learn so much more and you meet new people. And it just broadens your your mind in terms of what's possible, um, especially working from home. You know, it can feel like all I know is cushions and that's it. But actually, the world is much bigger and there's lots of other things you can do. And to work on such big pieces that have such an impact within a space as well has really shown me how many more things I can do. And I've actually got a couple of things in the pipeline um, that I've got coming out towards the end of the year that are just a new product edition with a slightly different take on what people are used to seeing from me. To see more of Eleanor's work, head to 1985.co.uk or to Heels or Heels.com where her collections for Heels are sold. And thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of Home Truths. In the meantime, don't forget to buy the latest issue of Living Etc. in the stores now and to follow us on Instagram at Living Etc. UK and me on at Pip Cormac. See you next time.
This episode of Home Truths was sponsored by Heels, design that lasts a lifetime.